Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I speak with Tom Kerridge. Tom's a Michelin-starred chef who's got a new book out this year called Outdoor Cooking. During the pandemic, he founded Meals for Marlow, a service to provide meals for overworked frontline and key workers. They cooked and prepared over 100,000 meals. Now that Under the Skin is on Apple Podcasts, please go there if you've got an Apple device and review it. It helps us and we will read them out. Five-star reviews... Try and use really long, fancy words. Use weird references. And don't be afraid to criticise Jenny Mae Finn. Say five stars. The only problem is perhaps Jenny Mae Finn, uh, like a, an energy hemorrhoid. Call it uh. like that. Any of you that use... And hemorrhoid's not an easy word to spell. Jenny Mae Finn, energy hemorrhoid. What does that mean? Sort of imagine a hemorrhoid. How would that work? Well, a hemorrhoid is a sort of, as you know, a punctured part of the sphincter. Because it's so powerful. Well, it's... <laughs> That's a horrible little dangle down, Jim. No, no one wants too to. Powerful. <laughs> it's a horrid little dangle down. No. It's a dangling weed fella, like it's a bit a... of seaweed. Now. Um, we'll read them out as well. We will read them out, especially if they're good. And it particularly, yeah, re- we'll read them out on the podcast. So please do it. And please don't be afraid to express your honest feelings about Jenny Mae Finn, no matter how negative they may be. My feelings about her are pretty negative as well. What have you been doing, Jen? Um, not much. That's terrible. That's your that's your banter. Um, not much. Have yeah. you even been doing your job? Yeah. Are you, are you having any affairs? Are you dating no. anyone? You're not dating anybody. Nobody. No I, love interest. Not, I know what I realised. Go on. When no. I look at people, I just know. Oh, you've got so many issues, and you're really normal. Like I can't see. No one's. No one is like. Ooh. Everyone's, no one seems like a magical escape to you. No, everyone's like, oh, he or she or they, you just don't want to do it. It's better to be alone. Even yeah. my sexual obsession's on the wane. That's good. Yeah, I don't. I look at people and I think, oh, what's the point? That's what I think. Oh, what's the point? But I don't have a person, yeah, so it's not helpful. Yeah, well, perhaps it's good for us both. Come on, Jim. Well, you're married, though. <laughs> 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 it's yeah, good for you. Married, two kids. I, well, I don't have a person. Anniversary. So you, Jenny, the one good thing about you <laughs> is that you're lonely, so no one else is suffering <laughs> as a result. Oh, well, guess who's listening to the podcast now? It's available on. on Apple Podcasts. Who? Justin. He's listening. listening. Going oh, Justin, it, I hope you've heard your wonderful jingles. Uh, here is the first one, the banter decanter. Banter decanter. You can't hear it though. Why? Because you don't have your headphones on. <laughs> Why can't I hear it out loud? Because you'll hear everything. Don't you dare come between me and that colour box. I hope oh. you... Um, so leave a review on Apple. Use the, the phrase energy hemorrhoid. We'll be oh. looking out for that. Jen, will you check the reviews and make sure you yeah, find them? Yeah. Will you? You look yeah. down when you said that. Into the lie <laughs> corner. The people... The corner that politicians look down into when they're doing a lie. Didn't you? The lie corner. Yeah, there's a the lie corner. <laughs> yeah, the lie corner is where people look down to if they're telling a little but lie. Don't my eyes move too much anyway? You do have the darting, furtive eyes of a criminal. That's true. <laughs> Here's some comments from the brilliant episode with my intellectual crush. <laughs> now type of comments. It's a bit preemptive there, Jen. You told me to interrupt you last time. A preemptive. Robert McFarlane, my crush, my literary crush, Robert McFarlane. Have you read any of his books? No, but I was thinking I'd like to when I was editing it. That's rare. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant writer. 
He's exquisite. I mean, he's up there with the greats. He's got good vocabulary. He's brilliant. Him. Who are my mates? Him, Nick Hayes, Rupert Sheldrake. Don't forget the... You've forgotten the same person again. Not Jocko. No, you forgot this person last time. Bradley Garrett. Yeah. I love Bradley Garrett. We sent him that book, didn't we? Demire, we sent him that book, didn't we? Bradley Garrett. Remember we sent a book to someone's girlfriend? I think she was called Amanda. Yeah. See? Done. But, hold on, let's have a listen to these comments, because it's not just me who fancies Robert McFarlane. Alabama 28, foie. Fancy. That's not what people say, is it? Foie. Foie. In written world. But no one says it in real life, do they? Yeah, but in, even in written world, you say foie. Oh. Foie. This is a little bit of an aura. Well, there's no O in this one. This is foie. Oh. Foie. <laughs> See, it's different. You don't want to be open at the larynx with that. Fwah, you're like, Because it brings the energy forward. Fwah. Yeah, but there's no point with the energy, remember? So what do you see? If you see someone who you find sexually attractive, what do you do? They don't find anyone attractive anymore. Anyone. Even the chis- they could have the chisliest chins. Even it's like been very chis- rare. I think I saw someone in Sydney two years ago when we were touring there. Did you point him out to me? You weren't beside me. He was on the, in the street. I was getting a sandwich. Getting a sandwich. <laughs> I was a... getting a sandwich. Where was I? You were over in your mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't in a mountain. Don't come paint a portrait of me. Some out of touch prima donna up in a botanical. I was walking around the streets of Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> Objectifying people. One person, yeah. And well, I, was I was really up in happy. mountains meditating. I was really happy. That I felt that. that. Why don't we track this guy down? Are you? What did he look? Was it a guy? You're a guy. In, uh, right. Hello. Are you in Sydney? This tall. Could, are you tall? tall. God, that's not my usual type. That's not relevant. At this point. Then. <laughs> are you in Sydney? Are you tall? Yeah, kind of longish hair. Have to you his got chin. longish hair to your chin, or did you have two light, years ago? Light, light, light coloured. Is it light coloured? This hair, this chin I hair. I think he had a tote bag. Do you have a tote bag? <laughs> Did you have a tote bag two years ago and chin hair? Chin, fair chin hair. Thin. Two years, thin. Are you thin? Look at yourself now. If you're fat, <laughs> it's not you. If you're even medium built, it's not you. If you're anything other than thin. Now look down at your chin. What's his chin like? I was thinking it was nice. Is your chin like a... It wasn't of, too long and pointy. Parsnip. You had good cheekbones that balanced it. So. You've got, like, your chin... Your, <laughs> your cheekbones are like a couple of new potatoes. And your chin is like a parsnip. You like you like a sort of a like a you like a mural made of veg. Are you like that? A veg mural. <laughs> if so, are your lips a couple of pea pods? Are your eyebrows two sort of corn like you know corn when it's in not corn on a cob, wheat. Like a sheaf of wheat, like a bead of wheat. Oh, did they? I didn't see his eyebrows. Yeah, no, I'm doing those. Oh. Like wheat. I think Wurzel Gomez actually had them. Like, you know, like if you see a field of wheat mm. and then you break the head off it. Yeah. What do you call that bit? Wheat. Wheat. <laughs> oh, do you know the guy, the lead singer of, which is very stereotypical of me to like that, the lead singer of the Italian band that won Eurovision? I look at him and go, yeah. What's he like? Who's he? Damiano. He's only like 20 though. Is he handsome? Yeah. Very camp. Fwaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaa
tainting the experience. Listener shout ah, time for listener shout outs. Listener shout outs. Bit late, bit late on that one. It was too early on the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Lofty and Sharon say, love the podcast with Bradley Garrett, my friend, on prepping. We've been big fans of yours for years and we think you've refined your art and vocabulary lately and talk about the things I've believed in for years, community, anarchy, etc. It's really nice. When others reinforce what you're thinking yourself and you do this for me on a daily basis. Now, another person I met the other day was in, uh, I went camping. Did you know that about me? Yeah, you went to Wales. I went to Wales and there I met a woman. I've met a lot of people that I love now. Aubrey, love him, runs a campsite. We in always Hay. do this. No, I don't. <laughs> Aubrey, love him, lovely guy, big Viking, lovely guy, runs a campsite. Love him. I went. I went. I'm gonna call it white water rafting, Jen. Did you find it? I got out. <laughs> Why did you get it? Because we was trapped on rocks. I went there with our kids. It's good. Have you been trapped on rocks? Have you been white water yeah, rafting in the south of France? When did you do that? I went away for two days a few years ago. Why weren't you working again? I was. <laughs> I remember being very stressful because I went away for two days. Crazy. So how did you find the white water rafting? Oh, you liked it. It was really fun. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. It wasn't really white water rafting. We had two canoes lashed together to make a raft. And we were in there, me, Laura, the children, and we rode downstream. I wore a hat. Did you get out and swim at any point? We got out one bit. Sadly, the River Wye is suffering from low rainfall and I saw several dead fish and it made me feel like I was in a movie about Armageddon, really. Oh. But it was, other than that, it was pretty amazing. Anyway, Aubrey I love and this woman, Jo, who offered me, you know, Reiki, but I didn't have time to have it. She was lovely. And then we stayed on a campsite in Aberaffan and I made friends with whole families of people. Uh, Jay and Luke and their little boy, Idan, and uh, Rob and his partner, Lisa, and that little boy, Arthur, amazing little artist, and their daughter, Daisy. I was camping. I was living normal life, baby. Were you in a van? Yeah. yeah. Did you drive it? I'm not allowed because <laughs> it's a manual. Yeah. And you didn't give me any manual lessons. You said you were getting them from somewhere else. I was getting some, but I could have done with more. And it might have given me some more confidence. But you, like with your sunglasses and like your car, <laughs> wouldn't borrow me then. Why? <laughs> Because it's my sports car. You should practice in a little Fiat or something. I'd like to practice in your sports car. <laughs> Get your mate Angela to make me some more T-shirts, will ya? Yeah, uh, she'd cheap, like cheap that. price. I'll wear them on the say If she gives me a bargain price, I'll wear them on the TV. <laughs> what TV? Internet. <laughs> Best kind. Modern. <laughs> I'll wear it. I'd like different colours. Nothing too bold. Do you uh, want the same design? Grays. No, different design. I want to. Cr- I like the shape. I want my sleeves a little bit shorter. A lot of people heavily criticise my t-shirts on YouTube, you know. Yeah, she still did a scoop. But I love it. It's a nice scoop. Bad. It's a lovely scoop. I only had a couple of t-shirts on the holiday. The kids were pulling them so long, Jen. It was an absolute <laughs> nightmare. Like, it was down to my navel by the end. I looked absolutely loose because they hang on me. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you want a crow? Just yeah, a little crow? A crow one. I want, want some grey. I'd say a little crow off to the side. A bit of branding. A bit of branding. And they're different colours. Yeah, can she send me some options? I'd like five T-shirts I'll commission. I'd like to commission five T-shirts. Bunzo Stilana is the name of the thing. Well, you're promoting it. That should be another 10 quid off. <laughs> Shouldn't it? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> this Is this name available? Says 
started listening about a month ago, currently working my way through this from the start. Thought-provoking, insightful, with a sprinkling of daft humour too. Still on 2017, I've enjoyed them all so far, but particularly the ones with Frankie Boyle and Billy Bragg, who love the working class. Thank you. Nice, they were good episodes. Go back and listen to those. All right, should we go to Tom Carriage now? Or should I just tell you, if you're not meditating yet, get on above the noise and meditate. If you're not watching my YouTube, you should be. If you ain't signed up to my mailing list, by God, you better. And if you're not coming to my live dates, come to my live dates in the UK. Jenny Mayfin, you'll be working on them, won't you, Jen? Yeah. Looking forward to that? Oh, Where yeah. are you going to stay? Hotels. Why don't you come stay here? It's not relaxing because it's the working environment. <laughs> you're not meant to be relaxing. Yeah, I'm after work. No, you know, keep, stay alert. No, because you know what I do? I go back to the hotel and then I get a little can of beer and then I sit and I date around all the show. What do you do? I transfer and sync all the photos. Okay, but I don't want you because having. I'm here. I'm sat all upright everywhere. I like you upright. No. <laughs> and I don't want you having a hedonistic time in a in a premiere. Yeah, but you said I might meet someone, so I need to have a hotel. That's oh, bringing them back to your place on my dime. <laughs> well, I pay you play. Is that the game? I pay you play. No, I, live, sleep. I live a calm, married life of chastity. <laughs> you told me I might, that was your pitch and to you're me. And you're living it up. That was your pitch to me. That was then, <laughs> This is now. Yeah, it's okay, nothing ever happens. No, I want you to meet someone, I think. All right. <laughs> I want everyone to meet someone. I want people to be happy. They have to be more extroverted and entertaining. They have to bring the extrovert out of me. Oh, okay, well... Extrovert, you say? Yeah, because I kind of someone who is more introverted. Cause oh, my just, God. They're me... more introverted than you. It's like they're not even <laughs> part of our species. <laughs> It's like they're just some uh, like a blob of protoplasm in a in a bucket. Oh. You might as well go out of a blob of protoplasm. I don't want to. I said I want the opposite. A blob. All oh, right. You want to go out of some sort of live wire like Ken Dodd? Oh, how about <laughs> how about Jay Leno? No. He's got a hell of a chin. No. Who else is it now? Uh, it was Jocko, wasn't it? Or Jay? Oh yeah, Jocko. <laughs> Or Damiano. No, he's too young. He's a baby. How, he's too young. He's a baby. How old is he? <laughs> 20 or 21. No, he's not right. And he's Italian. No, no, no. Not after the Euros. I, okay, so listen to that. <laughs> listen to Above the Noise. Melissa Walsh, I just need to say thank you. After adding meditation in my life, the breathing techniques you go through and listening to your memory, I'm happy to tell you I'm leaving the forces. Bloody hell, mate. And I hope to learn plant-based medicinal approach to mental illness that I no longer live in the darkness in my mind. You have unknowingly saved my life. Oh, my God. This is good. Thanks, Melissa Walsh, for saying that. I want you to be well. I want you to be happy. I'm sending you love. Okay, remember, you can see me on tour. Go to russbrand.com, live dates, and you can find out where there's tickets left and uh, sign up for the, for the mailing list as well. Gal, if this gets... <laughs> used to be Morrissey, my cat. Now it's Mabel, my daughter. There's always someone bugging poor Gareth as he tries to edit together our fantastic YouTube content, which you should be watching, whether it's the Awakening channel uh, or the main channel with fantastic, borderline, risky content. All right, let's have a listen to Tom Kerridge, my friend, entrepreneur, chef, man of the people, giant-hearted, glorious chap, Tom Kerridge. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin.
Tom Kerridge, thank you for coming on Under the Skin. Thank you very much for having me, my friend. I'm glad we're doing this now because you did a podcast with me when I was practicing podcasts, which I don't think we ever put out. So I owe you, at very least, a podcast and possibly two podcasts. So this one we actually will put out. I'm quite glad I was part of the pilot scheme to see if it actually works and people like it. They decided they liked it, but just not the bit with me in. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, finally, justice. Mate, there's loads of things I want to talk to you about. I suppose like we should cover the basics of it. Like you've created a really sort of successful restaurant business, cookbook business, TV business. I mean, it's pretty incredible. People may not know what kind of background you're from. Tell us a little bit, um, if you don't mind, tell us where you're from and no, how you grew up and everything. So, yeah, well, I, I grew up in Gloucester, so it was um, the, it was a single parent family. So my mum and dad split up when I was eleven. Um, and my dad was also very ill, so he had um, multiple sclerosis. He had mm. MS, uh, but I don't. He wasn't the best of. Um, he wasn't the best of husbands. Is probably the best way of describing it. I don't think. Mm. Um, and so it, it ended up being my mum and um, myself and my brother. And you know, it was kind of. Well, it, I mean, to be honest, it didn't feel that different. There were lots of kids from broken back, broken homes backgrounds. You know where I grew up, the, the kind of the the areas that I lived in. It wasn't, it wasn't too, it wasn't the abnormal thing. There were loads of people that were just getting on with life in that sort of space. So I didn't feel that it was any different to anybody else. And we just kind of um, got on with it. My mum was working; she was a secretary in the council. She ended up, she got two jobs. She ended up working in a pub in the evenings washing up and so I was um they used to call it back in the day when we was kids it was a latchkey kids that like you finish school and you'd let yourself in and cook yourself tea or make sure that you try and did your homework I mean I never did my homework but that kind of you know you were you were looking after yourself almost and I'm not quite sure whether they still do that or whether kids are allowed to do that I don't know really I don't know the rules at the minute (laughs) my little man's not 11 or 12 yet so so it's kind of um so that's the area and the background that I grew up in and it was um we never felt like unloved or never felt that it was um it was anything different. My mum was like, my mum is a superstar. You know, she was, she was both parents wrapped into one. So she, you know, she was fantastic. She was great. And we, we never felt that we went without, although we did know that there was no money. It's quite a, quite a funny situation. We didn't feel deprived of anything. There's loads of things I identify with there, mate. Like, you know, sort of a, the latch key idea that key in the end i wasn't allowed to keep that key because i was con- i would come <laughs> home from school too early and, and not go back and that started to be hid and only left out at certain times to stop me bunking off and like you said you just come home and like make yourself food i bet the quality of food you made was a lot better quality even then me i'll just go straight for them penguins <laughs> no don't worry no i was exactly the same I, I didn't really get into cooking until i actually walked into a kitchen so it's kind of uh, the food that i would do I, it would be things like i don't know I, w- I would do like pot noodles or fish finger sandwiches or you know fingers crispy pancakes those sort of things but it was i think it was probably there wasn't the connection then to wanting to be a chef or be in the world of food, but I think there was a connection to knowing that my, um, my, where I was going to go in life was always about being something or doing something practical, you know, something with end results, something that I would put something together, 
you know, and you, you put it on a tray and you stick it in an oven for a set time and it comes out and there is a result that has changed from your hands or your sense of doing something rather than one of academia and grades and A-levels and that sort of stuff. Like I was always destined to be a practical person um, of, of trying to do something. So, but it wasn't until I was 18 that I, like I walked into a kitchen and, and it wasn't the food that I fell in love with. I went there to wash up and I, I fell in love with... Um, I just fell in love with the environment. I fell in love with the way of life. I fell in love with the people. You know, it was such a restaurants and hotels and hospitality. It's got such great high energy. And it's it is slightly a left field way of life. You know, there is a there is a an amazing energy source for people that work on a Friday and a Saturday night and don't finish till midnight and then go to the pub or the bar that still is open and then they let you in because they know who you are. And also there's a very different it's almost like outside of there's 90% of the world that gets on in their normal nine to five kind of bubble. And it feels that you're living outside that world, looking in on it. And it, and it's that for me, I felt it was super exciting to be a part of. And that's what I fell in love with and still massively in love with. The idea that you like didn't consider cuisine or cooking or becoming a chef as a way of life until you encounter the kitchen that's interesting i was just thinking had the image of you going in there as a sort of like doing the pots and washing up and that and you turn out to be one of those one in a million personalities that's going to become a brand name tv chef like that's a sort of like you know because if someone if you went in there and goes i'm gonna be a brand name tv chef i'm gonna have books i'm gonna have an empire that's like crazy talk right and like you've done that and i wonder if you can can you think back at all to before you had this idea of like, you know, b before you were inspired, before you saw people doing cooking in a way that made you feel that you could do it and take it somewhere. Can you have any connection to how you felt as a kid just making food, like whether or not you sensed something in it? You know, how like some people have green thumbs or whatever and are good with plants and nature. I wonder if you felt that you had a relationship with food. And then the other side of that, I want to say, is like about vision, because you're not like just a sort of, you know handyman practical person because you've built along with obviously your your partner a massive business empire that requires a great deal of vision and as well as sort of a practical insight it requires a lot of imagination and of course cuisine requires a is an art and requires a a, a lot of intuitive understanding and i i want like when i look back at my own life and i think what that I have become was present then and of course maybe we look back on it and maybe I romanticize it because of the kind of person I am but I feel like oh wow the way I looked at things then I can see it I didn't like school I didn't trust nobody all that stuff that's playing out in my adult persona I can see the roots of and I wonder if around even the preparing and making of food and indeed the ability to create a business empire whether or not you can see traces of that present in your pre-success life as it were. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. The, the answer to that is a, a, like a, a straight, honest, like no. I I never I never considered that I would be in this position now ever. Because I think if you ever think that you're going to be um, fronting up a you know six or seven restaurant businesses with a festival business and television and books, I think you straight off start off being like a really arrogant you know, self-centered, self-minded. This is, it's all about me and that's what I'm going to do. That's but how I was. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> and I still haven't but, got a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you can imagine that kind of like stroppy kid that, you know, that self-absorbed and it, I just wasn't that. But I did 
I've always thought I'm going to be all right. I've never once feared that I would be a failure. I fear failure, but I, I don't mind taking on challenges. I like to say yes to stuff. I think if they're good fun, I'll have a go of it. And I've never shied away. I'm not scared of hard work. You know, I, I quite like hard work. I like stress levels, you know. At the minute, it's weird because we enter a world right now where stress is being talked about as a bad thing and working hard is being talked about as something that we shouldn't all be doing. But there's a lot of people that thrive on stress and stressful environments and working hard because the rewards that you get from it when you've driven through that level, you know, you operate at those levels and your mind likes it and your body likes it. And you wake up in the morning and you're nervous about going to work because you've got to achieve something. And, and I don't mean you've got to achieve something for it's very different if you feel that you're nervous about going to work you've got to achieve something for this like beastly owner that's beating you with a big stick and it's horrible but those pressures that you put on yourself you want to improve if you want to improve and you want to be better and you've got to drive yourself I think personal ambition and personal drive and, and putting yourself under those stress levels I thoroughly enjoy it. and there's a lot of people that like it as well but at the minute we're kind of in a world where that's always seen as a bit of a bad Thing. If you look at like athletes, look at the England football team, for example, they're very nervous about stuff, but they're at the same point, they're incredibly good. Those nerves. So when you go on stage, you must have a little bit of pre going on stage nerves and excitement and stress levels. And that helps you perform, surely. I mean, it's the same as every day. And I quite enjoy that. Yeah, drive and appetites. Like I've always had strong appetites, drink, drugs, success, all of those things I like I've always wanted quite a lot now me it's sort of a like often had a t tendency to sort of topple over and be sort of it didn't ultimately lead to me being very happy but when you were talking in I was thinking about Jocko Willink the Navy SEAL who came on the podcast like a couple of weeks ago and like that man is willing to put himself certainly when he was active into like military situations life and death situations and can manage and handle those feelings like these drives that keep us alive as animals can be repurposed it culturally to create a lot of great stuff. But I suppose the reason maybe it's critiqued these days is because often the direction that people pursue don't lead to greater happiness. How, are you, for like, given that you started off as a, a man who didn't sort of think, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to build this, you just sort of let it happen, you always knew you'd be all right, coming from a pretty zen, connected place, it sounds like, Tom. And certainly, now that, you know, I think I can say we're friends, and that's how you seem. You don't seem like someone who's fretting and stressing. You seem like you're very dedicated to your work I must say but you also seem like you're dedicated to your son and you're dedicated to your wife and you're dedicated to being kind to people you seem like someone who doesn't get too distracted and stuff do you feel um do you feel like happy with what you've created in life or is there still do you because like a lot of my understanding of drive is comes from a place of I'm not good enough that's what I like and I'm just speaking for myself I'm not good enough I need to sort this shit out so as I am good enough it doesn't seem like you were running on that channel no it's it's it, it slightly I mean I'm constantly in disbelief that we're in this place you know you know that imposter syndrome thing I constantly think I'm a god I mean how am I that bloke that's here how on, how on earth have I done that and how do I uh, why is it me that is sat in this space and then I go well actually you know I'm 100% committed to everything I've done I've worked incredibly hard you know there's been weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on end for years and years and years that I've done 80 90 100 hour weeks of work to of drive and passion and commitment and, and you say it's work, but it actually, 
if it's it's more of a way of life i've em- i've embraced and wrapped myself into a way of life that i i feel that there's an end goal and i don't know where that is yet and that drives me a little bit nuts it drives my wife nuts like in terms of there's always um this moment of going and it's not about um me going i'm not good enough it's about i'm always saying to beth oh it'll all be all right when like i ne- i hardly ever 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 live in the moment do you know what I mean? As I'm talking to you now, I'm going, okay, what have I got on next? Where am I going next? What am I doing now? Like, what's happening tomorrow? What's happening next week? What have I got to solve on Friday? What have I got? There's never, and and that's great for ambition and it's great for business and it's been brilliant for us to be able to build where we are now. But it's also a bit rubbish for personal life, for little moments of going, wow, this is just magic and i know when we catch up every now and then and we have a chat and you've just come back from somewhere really lovely or you've done something with you know the kids or you've done and I, those moments i go oh, I, like i wonder what I, I go I, in myself I, go, I wonder if russell switched off into that moment then because every now and then i get it and i get it mostly when when i'm with ac my son i get it mostly when he says something that's super special like that i'd never give up like the other night i was doing i was you know doing bedtime i was doing the nights and i was reading him a story and whatever else and he goes and that's it i'm I'm tired now daddy and i put the book down and like and he's just as he's dropping asleep and the lights are off and he whispers and he just goes i love you daddy and that moment is the most magic and that for that moment then is the only real time that i just it just goes that's magic there's nowhere else I'd rather be nothing nothing could replace that nothing none of the chaos or the drinking or the fun times or all the the brilliant stuff that I had that I don't do anymore to that that is the most magical but I I do struggle with living in moment right now what are we doing how cool is this do you know what I mean I I do I do struggle with that and it drives it drives my wife nuts because I'm like yeah but the next thing it'll all be all right when we're going to do this or we're going to do that it just it's bananas really yeah, it's well, good it's good for ambition it's good for it's good it's good for ambition and it's good for business but it's pretty rubbish in that in your own personal space yeah that you're always being driven forward i think that's fantastic i think i have some of the same syndrome but i feel like i don't know maybe it's been changing a little bit lately but it does prevent you from smelling the roses of like all oh, right this restaurant's open now or this book is completed or this tv show's on the air or this festival's gone well and we're able to continue doing it like in those moments you're continually driving forward but i think that's sort of like a common quality of leadership i think and certainly a common quality of entrepreneurship do you like if you do have time where it's just you and your family do you find it hard to just chill out and settle and to leave your phone alone and to trust that you've delegated correctly and that work is happening all right and you don't need to get the hell in there and get involved no actually for work i'm very good at delegating i'm quite lucky i've surrounded myself with some really good people and people have grown with the business rather than just employed however we have employed good people as well that come with us on a journey um, but I'm quite good at delegating and standing back. Uh, I also know when I've got to jump in and pick up the pieces and there's problems. Um, but when I am with the family, it is the most times when I can just try it and just, I'm just enjoying this moment. I'm really enjoying being with Beth. I'm really enjoying being with Ace Man. And he really connects with us as well. Because he, you know, Monday to Friday, I might take him to school maybe once, maybe twice. And then sometimes I'm not back in the evenings before he's gone to bed, but maybe the whole week. And, but I try to keep 
Saturday is Sunday. I mean, there's at least one day. We try to do both. I've, I've got much better at trying to keep the weekends. This summer this summer's slightly different. Obviously, you know, we've got a whole series of festivals and restaurants that have been shut for a, however 10 months or whatever that we've got to try and claw back and get moving again and get that energy going. But trying to connect with the family is, is, is really important. It's a good space for me to be in, to go into. And you talk about those qualities of being, you find them in entrepreneur. Like I've not looked, there's only, I don't know, it's weird. I never looked as a, you young man in the 20s or 30s or even early 40s of what really an entrepreneur is but as I've got I'm late 40s now and getting closer to 50 and you start looking at and you meet like-minded people that run their own businesses or do their own thing that you you connect to and it doesn't you know at, at the age of 50 and they've got they've achieved stuff and you go how have they done that and then you start recognizing lots of their their traits, their personality traits, or their business mind, or their just their 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 what they do to con- disconnect from business, or how they what they do to they're always they always seem to be very driven, um quite sometimes quite flawed personalities. There's nothing most people who are incredibly successful or successful at what they do aren't beige characters. They're quite you know there's something that's quite jaggedy up and down about most people that are huge successes i've found in in the kind of travels that i've been on yeah yeah it seems that that's the case that it comes with a kind of uh like a price tag on it and um, tom what about how did you given your uh sort of a uh, devotion stroke obsession to working life what how did you cope in the hospitality trade during the period when like restaurants was the most you know what did you do what was your response to dealing with everything being shut down and locked down you must have been frustrated how did it affect you emotionally what what did you do well at first it's obviously incredibly terrifying and frightening and it is you worry about your business you know there was that really weird little period right at the beginning where the government boris johnson told everybody to not go to pubs bars restaurants clubs you know cafes but he didn't tell the cafes pubs bars restaurants to close if there was no there was no help. There was no conversation about what they're going to do to help. There was about three or four days where there was that point to the point of talking about how there's going to be that rescue package. And that four days was horrific because nobody knew what to do. If the guests and the customers coming through the door didn't know what they were doing. You know, they had a book in there, but then they're being told not to go. What are they supposed to do? But the booking still exists and the restaurant's still open. It's kind of, it was, it was a really uncomfortable place. And then your first point of call is worrying about, um, staff and your colleagues and the people that you work with people that many of which we've worked with for decades you know you, you what do we do about them and how do we make sure that they because if i don't know as a 47 year old man what does a 22 year old that works really know i mean they're looking at me for some sort of leadership or some sort of telling them it's all going to be okay you know you go if i've if i'm completely confused and particularly nervous and worried about it they must be going well what's happening to my life and my job what's going to happen you know if the restaurant's shut that does it is that it so it's trying to um make sure that everybody felt comfortable um and make sure that they were okay so that was the first bit and then obviously the furlough scheme came in which helped i mean it's helped it's helped workers it didn't particularly help it doesn't it's not been helpful for business in terms of um it's not helped paid rents rates if it was a short-term thing and that we were only locked down for that short period it's great the longer it's gone on there's been a huge amount of debt that's incurred because you still got to pay rents you've still got to pay costs you've still got mortgages you've still got national insurance to pay you've still got all of those other costs you know internet costs like it's just just everything still exists although it is smaller but if there's zero revenue coming in there's still it's still incurring and piling debt into it 
but me personally, like you said, I, I mean, I, I probably worked harder in the last year than I've ever, I've ever worked, not as a chef, but as a, as a stressed out businessman who's trying to save businesses and solve it and, and, and make sure that there's some sort of foundation for the future for us who have been able to open to. So I was working every single day and um, working out business strategies, working with the senior management about how do we do, where do we restructure, what have we got to do, do we have to make redundancies, what do we close, how do we cut corners, how do we tighten things up, all of those sort of things, whilst the weight of it on our shoulders. But also, I ended, we ended up opening, setting up a charity called Meals from Marlow. So Marlow, as you know, is an incredibly beautiful and wonderfully affluent town with a lot of people that want to care and help. So, you know, we set up this amazing charity to help um, frontline NHS workers first and foremost in the initial part of the um, lockdown, but also vulnerable and needy people within the area because even Marlow has people in it with very little money or very little in terms of communication and conversation with everybody else. So if you're a if you're a lonely widow or widower and you know you're you're sat at home and all of a sudden you can't go to the shops, you're 76 years old and there's no connection to anybody, it must be a terrifying place. So we connected with the church. So we provided the meals, the church delivered them, and they were, you know, knocking on people's doors. That connection, that human being connection was vitally important to so, so many people just to be able to have a conversation from over two metres away or whatever else. Just once a day, a connection with a smiling human face, I think, has been a big saviour to lots of people, which is, was amazing. And then obviously, I, I also was work, worked quite closely with the Mar Marcus Rashford campaign. So we set up something called um, full-time meals with Marcus and Tom, where we were trying to connect with people um, who uh, use the healthy start vouchers or are qualified for the healthy start vouchers, but don't know they exist. So that was trying to drive the profile of that. And that, that there's videos of those that are coming out once every week, every Sunday, there's a new video of us cooking pocket friendly meals that I, I'm doing and um, that Marcus is cooking or somebody else that jumps in for him, you know, uh, some form of celebrity or famous face or someone that has a go at cooking these meals that are all budget friendly and super tasty. Um, and I suppose those were the two big things that, that, that we did when we went into lockdown and came out the other side. We opened a new, we opened a fish and chip shop in Harrods. So, so we were planning that. So we went into lockdown with five restaurants and we've come out with six and two charities. It's a good time to strike. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, opportunities in hospitality at a time where people can't touch anything <laughs> or go out or breathe. This is this is the time to really heavily invest, I would say. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that um, what you're doing there with the frontline workers, that's powerful. And the, the Marcus Rashford stuff is brilliant. How did you, how did you, um, how did that come about, mate? I know you're a Manchester United fan and stuff. How did it come about? Like, cause yes. most people will be aware of Marcus Rashford talking about kids in poverty and kids not getting enough food and stuff like that. How did you help turn uh, turn the attention to practical solutions around that? Well, we so I, I'm part of the national food strategy, which is um, kind of like a great big strategy that's being written. This part one and part two is supposed to be released later this year, but being written by Henry Dimbleby, who is um, the founder of Leon, and he's been kind of asked by the government. Um, it's not; it's a non-political. Um, space, but it is a strategy of working out what, how food and the future of food is affecting 
everything. So it's, it's, it's to build this thing together, no matter who is in power, the understanding of global warming, the understanding of capitalism, the understanding of mass crops, the understanding of, you know, of science, the understanding of technology, the understanding of like fishing, you know, quotas, all just everything to do with food strategy. But that is also to do with how that affects children's eating, where it comes from, obesity, diet, you know, all of those sort of things, and then end users, and then also restaurants and chefs and the industry. So I'm a very small part of it with a tiny little voice, but, you know, you listen to the science and you understand, you know, a one degree climate change in somewhere in America makes a huge difference on the crop yield that affects everything massively. Like it's massive. It's an under, that's a huge thing, but being a part of that, then a lot of people that are on that, um, uh, the national food strategy or have our voice and opinion or have a, a say or not, need an understanding of it, whether it's the big supermarkets or whether it's, um, uh, uh, whether it's about homeless or poverty, um, the way that that affects food, are also part of the Marcus Rashford task force. So then we started having a conversation and then um, Marcus, Marcus's background is very similar to mine, you know, a single parent family, mum brought up two kids. So we actually connected quite quickly very quickly actually and and got on very very well and just have that the the understanding of the need for um uh, encouraging people to learn to cook you know it's a skill set that many adults don't have now particularly young adults that almost generations have missed you know the understanding you know buying a takeaway burger is is sometimes cheaper than buying fresh ingredients and cooking it yourself and you just go okay the the balance of that is sat wrong and how do we how do we readdress that and we've got to readdress that by actually having the skill set and the energy and the effort to have a go at cooking but also some of these people only have one pan you know they're they're, they're you know they're, they might only have a kettle they might be living in temporary accommodation so it's trying to build a load of recipes that people with very very basic equipment or basic food knowledge can have a go at cooking at and you know marcus was the first to me it was the first time he peeled a carrot you know he, marcus left home he joined man united when he was six he left home when he was 11 to go five days a week at the club and then come home at weekends so it, it wasn't so this is the skill set that he wants to learn as well so and he's we've seen mark we all talk about social media being quite a um it can be quite a poisonous and a nasty place full of horrible little people with really bigoted opinions. But then at the same point, it can be full of magical people like Marcus, who shows how social media can be such a force for good and, you know, turning things around and equality and awareness. And, you know, he, and I, I don't know if you've ever met him in your travels or not, um, Russell, but when you do, he's a bit, he's quite a shy, um, uh, 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 quite a quiet young man but then when he engages and he talks and he smiles i i've really not seen anything like it like this this golden light you know in is it pulp fiction where there's the box that you never actually see but every time they open the lid this kind of golden glow comes out of it marcus is like that every time he when he smiles and engages he's, he's absolutely magical he really is he's got the saintly light of god shining out of him like the yeah. box in, in Pulp Fiction. Well, he clearly has because, I mean, this has been going on for years and years and this 22, 23-year-old kid turns up and just like nails it and deals with it. So, yeah, he's got something and he? he's clearly got like a very beautiful set of attributes and some real clear principles. It's very, uh, I must say, it's just, yeah, he seems like an extraordinary man. It's, yeah, it's pretty beautiful. He really is. 
head screwed on completely moral moral compass completely in the right place you know you know he's a, he, yeah, he's, he's he's a he's a very a genuinely lovely young man mate how do you when you're dealing with all this sort of like macro stuff like ecology the impact of monoculture on food production global warming like and how that might even play into stuff that i've talked about on this show with a woman called vandana shiva who talks about like some of bill gates's agricultural projects in like india and like the like um patenting of crops and all this kind of stuff how do you sort of deal with that mate when like you've got to like run a business because i was thinking there when you're sort of in one of those think tanks and task force and all of that that a lot of those things sometimes when it comes to it it's like the extraction of profit from business and i'm not talking about you know like people running businesses and doing all right i'm talking about giant global technocratic capitalism like, like that's causing a lot of this stuff. So what happens when those conversations are happening and does it have a sort of an impact on what you're doing running your thing? Do you sort of think, oh, like say for example, with ethically sourced food or something as simple as that or trade, local trade. I know like, like a lot of stuff I've seen you do, you do seem like you're, like even though obviously I'm a vegan and that, you seem like when dealing with meat, you want to get meat from legit places where it ain't too brutal and like all the knives that you use and all that stuff. It seems like you're pretty plugged into things being organic and supporting small businesses and stuff i am yeah but i find myself and this is a real awful juxtaposition that i really find myself in because my business the hand of flowers in particular is a two mission star pub restaurant that uses the best produce that we can find the most ethically sourced the well looked after great animal husbandry fantastic vegetables amazing you know that you connect really connect on a human level with the person that's looked after the carrots the person that's grown the crops the person that's looked after the beef and the cattle and the chickens and really care for this amazing produce and product but with that comes an extreme cost and people sometimes go why is you know i can't believe that food is so expensive and i say well you know you have to ask yourself then the question is why is food so cheap it's not why it's so expensive the great food there's a real journey of people and it's people and it's man hours and it's time and it's care and it's husbandry and looking after and it's all of these sort of things that then create this wonderfully beautiful product that the energy that's gone into it is an expense and that makes it very expensive and then you have the time and the effort that the professional staff that we have they you know they're paid properly they're proper staff that are on a career path that are you know and all of this is comes at a huge cost and you go and that's what everybody should be eating and that's you know i find myself that we should be going we should all be buying these very expensive chickens that are absolutely amazing that have well been looked after and blah 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 however the mass production of crops, the mass production of chickens, the 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 way that um, uh, pork and uh, 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 and uh, 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 vegetables are grown, and it, where where this where there is huge kind of like global push around the world, and you see as as we come out of the EU, out of the EU, that the you know an import of this or an import of that, and all these questions are raised and asked. But then you go, if you're a single mother with three kids that lives in a two-bedroom flat in a high-rise in the middle of Birmingham and you can buy a chicken for a pound 50 and you're roasting that chicken and you're doing it with fresh vegetables all right they're probably mass-produced with loads of pesticides and whatever else to get them to that point you got but you're doing a roast chicken that has vegetables and vitamins and in my head I'm going 
I, I can't say that's a bad thing because this person is spending a huge amount of money that is relative to them to create a meal for these kids that they've got. And you go like, but I'm at the same point at one end of the scale going, this is exactly where we should be as a chef. And this is what we're looking at in professional world. But on the other, I can't find myself to criticize too deep. Now I could criticize somebody who earns half a million pound a year buying a one pound 50 chicken, right? That isn't right. You know, you should be buying the the best one that you can afford. It's probably the best way of looking at it. Go just buy the best ingredients that you can honestly afford. But I, I do find myself in those really difficult positions in that mindset of where my voice should be, what I should be saying. You know, you you're at one point you're at this level as this professional chef of two mission stars that it's all about produce and you know British uh, craftsmanship and blah 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 or this thing, this thing, the other side of the world where you're going, yeah, no, 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 no. I understand why this person is buying a Brazilian chicken, you know, that's come over here frozen and whatever. Like I just, I, I do find it incredibly, I find it a really difficult space to, to hold personally. It is a bit difficult because like I've got things in my own personal life that are like that. When you see what top end gear looks like and you think that is that should be standard that is what standard should be and like what we're sort of told it's not realistic but but the word realistic means these systems have been set up primarily to benefit the people that you know see with the thing with the one quid chickens or whatever that ain't set up for the recipient of the chicken it's set up for the person that's selling the chicken you know like so like that's where the yeah. sort of point of the, the challenging point comes but i mean like it's yeah it's, it's a big big subject i uh, appreciate that now what about mate They're, like i'm vegan and i feel like my vegan people will like if i don't say something don't you ever think about that kind of deal like um you know animals animal welfare that kind of stuff what do you think about that yeah, animal welfare is is always massive and it's at forefront of all of our thinking in, no matter which space we have, you know, um, you know, it, it's got to be the best, but inclusive of fish as well. So, you know, amazing local fish that comes from day boats that, you know, fishermen that, are, are, you know, that go through practices that are correct. Um, the animals always, for, for our part, it, the most important thing about it is actually the animals that have gone through animal welfare that have been looked after, that have been reared properly, that have gone through a care process. They always taste better. The flavor is better. You know, so for our point of view, it is, it's, 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 it's vitally important, you know, as it, again, that's, that's another weird kind of space. Cause you know, I would consider myself an animal lover. You know, I, I do, you know, I do, I love animals. I've got two dogs. I love that, you know, but then at the same point, we go through the process of eating them. And again, it's that kind of mindset of going, but if you loved animals, you wouldn't eat them. Well, actually, you know, it's a very hard, you know, and it's a hard one to talk about with a vegan, for somebody, <laughs> you know, who, who, who would choose, chooses to not eat animals at all, but, you know, and it's quite, a, how do you just, how do I justify eating at meat i mean it's quite a hard one to go particularly in a conversation with a vegan <laughs> i suppose it's the pathways that's what i always think about it when i was like on joe rogan's podcast and they were talking about hunting what i what i got from that and it was also when i was listening to the sort of care that goes into your produce like me yeah i'm a vegan i'm a vegan for a reason i'm the only person that i'm allowed to say should be vegan is me even my kids they're vegetarian laura my wife she you know she eats meat and stuff and like 
in the end, your principles and your ideals have got to be for yourself. And you can tell people who are bloody interested, like, oh, this is why. But like, I think that when you start getting into judging folk, I don't feel, I feel like that's a, for me, that's a higher principle. The principle of non-judgment is higher than the principle of vegan. Vegan's a good principle for me, but non-judgment is a non-negotiator. I slip up on it all the time. I'm always judging people for all sorts of stuff, I guess. Um, but like I can imagine if you've come up as a chef and you've learned to like cook all and all of that and you're part of that crew of pirates and it's just normal and that's just life. You're not going to have that kind of sentimentality. One of the things I want to talk about like as well, mate, is your I love knife skills. I love seeing people do their shit like that when they're good at stuff. And like me, when I was at like home economics at my school, everyone just thought this is bollocks. We're not doing it. Like, you know, like, <laughs> uh, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I took that seriously. There's loads of people try to teach me things and I've switched off to it. Yeah. You know, like you've got such a sort of a, like when I've seen you make food, I've seen you cut stuff up. I've seen you make milkshakes and all that kind of thing. It's very beautiful to have a skill set. When did you start? What was your little pathway through it? And when did you learn? Like, when did you start to embrace the skill side of being of food preparation and the sort of the artistry of food? See, early doors. Now, you mentioned earlier that food and being a chef is creative and artistic, and it is to a point. But I very much viewed it as it's trade. It's a trade that I learned. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I build houses out of food. It's building blocks. It's flavor. It's understanding of what goes on a plate, and it's understanding. And then how you get there, it's a skill set. I don't, when you talk about knife skills and chopping, and it, it, it looks great, and you, you get – it's almost – it's almost like a dance routine of understanding the processes. You, we, I made milkshakes. I made vegan milkshakes around your house, right? And we did it. Um, it's the understanding of the things that go into the dish, where and when, and how you can, what goes in, what will be next, where do the flavors come from? And that all comes from um, a, a, an understanding of learning a trade. And, that, and that's for me, it's that simple. There's loads of chefs that are creative and very artistic in the way that they cook but it for me it's always been about the trade if you look see one of the most beautiful things that i've ever seen done is someone do proper plastering you know like a plasterer mm. that plasters your wall when they plaster a wall and you just see the smoothness the way it goes on and i think if you're appreciative appreciative of skill sets there's all those sort of things. And it doesn't matter whether it's someone chopping something, someone putting plaster on a wall, someone, someone a gardener, you know, laying bulbs or someone doing it. Doesn't, it doesn't matter at all what that skill set is. You appreciate and you can always tell when somebody has done it and done it for a long time mm. and they've become like a master of it. Mm. And there's something quite magical to watch about that, no matter what it is, I think. Yeah, I can identify, mate, because we've had some plastering done and they've not feathered the finish nicely. They've not, like, laid it down, like, and they've not done the edges underneath the seals. There's gaps. My mate Rory, he's doing the painting. He's saying, mate, I've done a grass stone up, but this should, I'm having to do this with filler. The plasterer, I should have finished this off. <laughs> so I, I do totally appreciate it. And another time... I love the way that he said, I don't want to grass him up. But. <laughs> Listen, otherwise it's going to take me six hours to sort out all of this. Right. And like, um, and like another thing is like, uh, like, to tell this story accurately, I have to tell the truth. So here we go. Okay. I, was, get, I okay. was in Los Angeles getting a meditation hut built. 
And like the geezer that come round, like the like the carpenter that was building it, he was so good. Like he was an old geezer, mate, and his hands were like leather, and he was all proper, like sort of like weathered person. And like the way he was talking about and making this sort of hut was so sort of beautiful. It made me think about what things are categorised as art and which things are categorised as craft or trade, to use your word there. And sometimes I think there's a kind of a discrimination that's taken place. You know, like what about the you know. I was thinking then as well that perhaps a lot of what you've bought to being a chef or whatever is like, all right, Ramsey's, Ramsey's got his whole Scottish fuck you thing. Jamie's got his affable, let's do it for the kids thing. Like, but like sort of the old school idea of a chef is like they're like ponces. <laughs> like, oh, French in around. And I guess what you bought to is, here's a pie, a fucking good pie. Like, and that's what you bought sort of like a English sort of working class, do the good things well kind of uh, mentality well, you know what? I, think, I, I think it goes back to that original question um, and that original thing about when did you, did you think you'd always be, you know, be that person and, and, you know, did you imagine you'd be that? And the answer was no. And what I've always tried to be, no matter whether it's been on TV, whether it's been on podcasts or talking or doing whatever else, it's always just tried to be 100% me and honest and you go it's actually and then there was a period there was about it was about eight years ago when people started to get to know who I was and it's become like flipping over from being known within the industry as the chef that's got two mission stars but being someone who's on tv and media and books and that and I remember speaking to Chris Evans radio presenter um and he, again another another top geezer that lives in Marlow and I remember speaking to him and he just he just said to me no matter what it is, you will always disarm everybody, no matter what folks they'll always look for, with honesty. Just disarm them with honesty. If you fuck up, you just go, yeah, no, I did this and that was that and that, or no, this is wrong because that, that. If you're just 100% honest about everything, then there's, there's, there's nowhere, there's nothing to fear. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing. You just go, just go on with your life being honest. And then you have, it doesn't matter if people do or don't like you, because if they don't like you, they don't like the honest, the, the true version of you. So then you go, okay, that's fine. They just don't, you know, and if they do like you, then it's great. So always just being that kind of like straight to yourself, honest version, I think is always, is really, really important. And that is a bloke from Gloucester that feels like he's blagging it, that's somehow got two Michelin stars, books, restaurants, whatever else, by just saying yes and working hard. That's pretty much essentially it. Does that mentality apply in... You see what you just said there about being authentic and being honest? I can understand that sort of ideologically, you know what I mean? Like own who you are, be yourself. How is that applicable when constructing a dish? If you're like, are you saying like, I want, no, that's not authentic to put those flavours together. No, that's not honest to use this and this. And can you give me an example of how that authenticity would play out in the construction of a menu or a dish? Yeah, massively. So when you could do... Um, when people look at... Um, People will cook with salmon quite a lot, for example, as a piece of fish. And it, you could take, they'll do it with, I don't know, you could do it with, for example, right now, broad beans and peas are lovely. They're British. And you go, yeah, let's do it with broad beans and peas. But then you wouldn't go and put soy sauce with it, you know, because that where's it, you've got salmon that's farmed probably from Scotland. You've got peas and broad beans that come from the UK and it all sits quite nicely, right? And you go, okay, that's now working. But why am I putting something from China or Japan into the dish? It doesn't, the, 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 they just don't, 
sit together. You need to, everything needs to have a true path and honesty of where it is. Now I could get why the salt element would work or why something, but you need to find that from something else that fits all the time. For me, cooking has to sit there, it has to fit, there has to be a purpose and a reason and not something that's all over the place. And then we put on a dish quite a while ago, um, like an Indian inspired fish dish. But I was like, look, I mean, we've got two Michelin stars. If we're going to put a fish dish on a menu that is um, that, that, that has some form of Indian inspiration to it, I can't just, I'm not, we're good cooks and we can make lovely curry, no problem, all right? We get it and I get the understanding of it. But I'm not, I can't put something on with authenticity without it being authentic. So I took myself and the head chef over to... Um, uh, a, a chef's place, a guy called Akhtar Islam, who, who's got a mission starred now um, in Birmingham. And he's an incredible cook who understands spicing and seasonings and that Indian cookery stuff. And it's just magic. So we spent two days cooking in his kitchen and I came away with one sauce and one marinade. And that was it. I just took on brilliant. And we practice it again and again. So it has to have that authenticity. I can't just, there's no point in just buying mild curry powder from Sainsbury's and putting it, it would work at home. But when you want to put something on at that level, it has to truly be authentic. Otherwise, otherwise I think people, guests can read through that. You can tell when it's just an afterthought or it's a curry flavor actually it needs to be real it needs to have the it's a it's, it's called a molly sauce which is kind of like um a coconut style uh, sauce that comes from uh goa and it's just got this beautiful subtle tones with a little bit of heat that goes through it but it's the process the understanding and all of that is so important to when you finally put it on a plate and is it important to the guest I mean, I think about it now, maybe 90% of the guests wouldn't even care. They just go, yeah, it's kind of like a coconut curry sauce. It's important to me that it's real. I know that we're getting towards truth because I feel that I'm thinking thoughts that have happened before because I'm, I'm about to mention ratatouille. And I know I would have mentioned that last time we spoke. I know that my understanding of food would come from the film Ratatouille. And like, it's that there must be a point where there's like a music in it. And I know I would have mentioned that last time we did this and didn't put it out. Like that it's like, the, like when you're going, oh, hold on a minute, I can feel it. I can feel the concert. No, you won't put, don't put that soy sauce with them beans. Hang on a minute. Now that's our ratatouille roll. He was always sniffing out of the hypocrisy, Sonny. He could smell it a mile off if there was some problem with a grub. Right, too, wouldn't have it. Unlike his brother, he'd eat anything out of the bins. That's exactly it. No, it's 100%. That's exactly how kitchens work. I mean, to be fair, it wasn't such a bad analogy of kitchens. I mean, they looked, the cartoon looked amazing. The kitchen looked fantastic. The energy and the noise of it looked... I mean, and the way that Ratatouille put his dishes together is pretty, it's pretty sad. <laughs> it's, a very good, it's a very good... It's not a bad place to get your education of kitchens from. And I remember as well before that we discussed like the hierarchies in there and the different types of chefs. Like you, I think, told me before that like pastry chefs are like they're highly strung, like lead guitarists and like your main chef. Yeah. Like there's different but types of mental no, they're, they're more chilled. Oh, pastry are they? chefs are chilled. chilled. Pastry chefs are quite chilled. They work in their own They work in their own world. They work in their own like little zone of just getting on with it. They don't get involved in the hot kitchen. The highly strung guys are the guys that are doing the meat and the fish. The sauce section where it's like all fire and flames and cooking 
raining hard and get it. The ones where they burn themselves and they're, they're the ones that are normally covered in tattoos and are like, like full on love the pressure and love the cooking. That's the meat and fish. And then there's a, the guys that cook the starters, the larder, they're quite controlled and focused and they're all, I mean, everybody can swap around. They do different skills, but each face has its own particular kind of moods to it. And certain people will gravitate to certain sections, but the pastry section is quite science-based and quite, chilled they're quite they have to work quite hard like in terms of getting things ready but they are everything is prepped everything is ready to go it's no worries you know you're not making anything to order you've already made the tart you've already the ice cream's already done mm. the little biscuits already done you're just a case of assembly the guys that cook the meat and fish they are cooking things to order they're cooking they're the ones that are cooking it now do get it done now hurry up hurry up hurry up hurry up pastry is mm. a bit more it's a little bit more relaxed right and a little bit of an error in that uh, in the mains department that's a, that's a big deal isn't it if you if you mess up over there yeah, massive, you know, because that's that's the, normally the most expensive ingredient as well, like, you know, fillets of beef, pieces of sea bass, you know, lovely bits of, you know, um, racks of lamb, all you know, all the expensive ingredients. Like, if you get that wrong, also it's the highlight of many people's of many people's meals so the guests of what is their main course you know so it's the most expensive bit it's the most expensive produce it's the most you know the skill set of it and you can't and you're cooking it pretty much to order so you can't get it wrong you know the guys that cook the garnish the vegetables that, that stood next to them they're doing the garnishes to go with that they're the ones that are normally the starting out that's where they're training that's where they're learning the kitchen because if they make mistakes it's nowhere near as expensive to replace potatoes or cabbages or whatever the garnish is. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the pieces of meat and fish, but saying that the guys that are cooking the, the garnishes, they need to have the same amount of love and respect and care for the, because if you don't like, if you don't love a cabbage or a cauliflower, what, and show it respect, what chance do you think you've got of me going? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you cook exactly the same way with a bit of sea bass? It just isn't going to happen. You've got to, you've got to love everything, but it is, yeah, the ones, the main course guys they have the most responsibility this is an applicable skill set i think that works anywhere is finding that thing in you and like expressing it like putting love into the thing that you're doing you can tell when you're dealing with someone that's got that way of being you know it becomes kind of beautiful whether it's watching someone play football cook food sing a song lay a brick or whatever when people have got that kind of devotion to what they're doing it sort of it plays out well i know a lot about cooking and as you know i won uh i won bake-off celebrity bake-off so let me tell I, you I, didn't i offer you a job as the pastry chef at the hand of flowers directly after that what you perhaps may not have observed is the amount of care and mental breakdown that went into my various obscene <laughs> inedible cakes. Um, since then, though, I sort of like cooked a lot more stuff. And like, like with the vegan cooking, vegan cooking, to synthesize something like cheese, right? Man, you got to get involved with things like agave, tapioca, things called psilocybin husk i ain't psilocybin husk that would be a different and trippy ingredient but like you've got to put so many things in there to make like mozzarella there's a thing called school night vegan he's like a good vegan sort of cook and i tell you that thing the process of cooking for me it plugs me in because i have to be really really particular i can't really do very much else god knows how you do it in a professional cooking environment shouting each other brandishing knives with someone's arse on fire you know because me if like one one of my kids says something to me i nearly have a mental breakdown do you know what i mean like so like i require such sort of a fastidious kind of no stop it i can see why chefs become arseholes actually because you've got to concentrate and <laughs> yeah you? like it, it does 
but that that goes back to those stress levels. You have to enjoy operating at that stress level. You have to have learned a skill set enough, enjoy operating at that stress level to be able to make it all work. And that's, you know, that's that's where it's you tie it all together. But yeah, people do get proper stressed about cooking. You know, at the end of the day, it's just food, isn't it? I mean, particularly at home, it's like no one's paying you to cook at home. Like the, the stress levels are just making sure that the kids stop crying and they get something to eat. Now that you've gone to these um, heights of expertise and excellent, don't it mean that you can't muck in with your crew or whatever in the kitchen now, like, and you've lost contact with the thing you loved in the first place, getting amongst it? Like, ain't you a bit alienated now if you do go on your restaurants up at the Corinthian or Arad's or that place up there with Gary Neville and all of these sort of top restaurants you've got? You can't go in there and stick on an apron and start cursing and that, can you anymore? No, it, it, it's quite difficult. I don't know. I try to stay connected. So I, I do maybe a day or two a week in London. I'll do, I try to do a day a week in Manchester, but that kind of normally goes, I might not be there for two or three weeks, but then I'll do two or three days. Um, I was at the Hand of Flowers last night. So I was running service last night at the Hand of Flowers and I'm there all day tomorrow as well. What does that so mean running service? That means that I'm stood on the pass. I'm the one that is making sure that everything is coming. So the, the checks come in from the waiting staff and I read them out and the chefs go, yes, chef. And we, we start, they do the cooking, we do the plating, making sure everything is right and send it. That's generally the head chef's role is being there on that pass, connecting, conducting. Mm. So I'm at the hand of flowers tomorrow. So yeah, I do miss it. I miss it massively. Um, and yeah, I know. I mean, sometimes I walk in there and there'll be some chefs that I've never met before that have been there for like two or three weeks. And I'm like, hello, mate, who are you? <laughs> you know, and you have to reconnect with people. It's quite, it is quite difficult. But at the same point, if if I was still there, the business wouldn't be able to grow. We have to have, you have to allow for personal and professional growth with the people underneath, with us and the top. Do you know what I mean? You have to, if I was always staying at that person there, there would be nowhere for these people to go. So you kind of, you have to let them flourish and grow. You have to let people grow, you know, make mistakes and learn from them. And, but yeah, I do miss the connection to kitchens. Uh, like if, if I'd love to be, you know, I love the idea of it. I love being at the Hand of Flowers. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, you got took out of it. Like it happens, I think, in a lot of professions that the uh, success takes you away because the thing grows and you've got to spread yourself more thinly and you've got to do all of these different things and all these various endeavors. Mate, what's the thing that you're uh, like? What's your new book? A cooking out, out, is it outdoor cookery? Outdoor cookery. Yeah, outdoor cookery, which is, um, which is, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's been a brilliant thing. That's something else that we did during lockdown. It was brilliant to be a part of because everyone was cooking outside. Most people were hanging out, particularly in the first lockdown. The summer was great. People were spending a lot of time cooking on barbecue. So it's all about, and I didn't want it to be about that geeky, foodie meaty kind of just like blokes cans of beer drinking you know and stood around burning sausages we wanted to make it a little bit more family friendly so there are like beef briskets and big meat stuff but there's a lot of vegetable and vegetarian stuff in there there's a lot of like fish being cooked on there um even some puddings as well so it's kind of like a multi-use cooking outdoors book i'm going on uh going to be driving around the british isles in a van for a couple of weeks so I'm going to be cooking a significant number of meals um, out, outdoors. I'll send you some photographs of me trying to cook some of the vegetarian options from your book, or possibly I'll send you some photos from the Burns unit. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Perfect. Well, e- e- either I mean, either one, I'll send you a big hearty emoji. <laughs> no, I know you will, mate. Um, so uh, you're getting ready to do some TV stuff now, and maybe like I don't want to tie this in time too much, but you're like at the moment, it still could be coming home. England have got Denmark this evening. You've got to do some TV spots and stuff like that, and then you're going to go and watch that probably. I am, fingers crossed. I'm going to try it. I've blagged a ticket. I'm going to jump on a tube and get up there and see if I can get into Wembley just just pre, just before kickoff. Oh, Tom, mate, thank you very much for making time for us. I think this is even better than the first one. And if it isn't, we can cut bits in from the last <laughs> one and create a kind of best of Tom Kerridge conversation. Perfect. <laughs> oh, Thanks, man. Thank you. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure. Love you very much. I love you and all. Cheers, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Tom Courage. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brown or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with hashtag Under the Skin. Remember, come see me live or listen to Revelation on Audible. And uh, Above the Noise is out now. Sign up to my community at RussellBrown.com. And if you like this, why not listen to Joe Wicks or The Happy Pair? Why did you choose those ones? Gin. Food-based activism. What about Joe Wicks? Health. <laughs> Lifestyle and health. All right. And keep checking my... <laughs> I talked to Charlie about it. It was a collaboration. And keep checking my YouTube channel for new videos. Thanks for listening to Underskin from Luminary. Bye. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye.